Hello all, warm welcomes to the second instalment this week of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show seeking out some of the more often forgotten obscure tales the UK and Ireland has in their histories and recounting them for what's hopefully your listening pleasures. I'm Paul, I'm the creator and host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. It's awesome as ever having you guys joining me here today and I hope that the episode finds you all well. So this week on the show, because the case that I selected turned out to be such a complex one, a proper get down the bloody rabbit hole on, that about 2am the other night when I was writing it, I thought, oh bollocks, do you know what, this is going to be a two-parter now. I thought that's win-win, it's double enthusiast for you guys this week, and it's a more manageable episode for me to record and edit if it's in two parts. If you haven't heard the first part of this week's case, The Grave at Grave Delec, then I advise you to stop here and head over to listen to that one first, otherwise this episode will make no sense whatsoever. It'll be like the plot of Lost. So in the first episode this week then, we heard how Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell, a middle-aged couple from the Channel Island of Jersey, had been reported missing. A mass search was carried out for them. Members of their family, including the sons Roderick and Mark, had all arrived over to assist in the search and inquiries had been made as far reaching as Spain and the UK mainland. But after two weeks, with no trace of the couple found, police were now considering their disappearance as sinister. They were becoming increasingly certain that they were dealing with a suspected murder. With guess who in mind as suspects? Reckon you can? The episode today contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always whilst listening, folks. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look at the second and concluding part of The Grave at Grave Delec. So over the first two weeks of the inquiry then, As we said in the previous episode, the island was scoured for any signs of the couple. The full Tommy Lee Jones bit, you know, as I did mention, the in-house, out-house, hen-house, dog-house bit. And family members of both Nicholas and Elizabeth's sides of the family had arrived on Jersey to stay and assist police, feeling that they needed to be doing something, anything. Police had visited the new old villa in Javier and spoken to their expatriate friends there and had spoken to everyone in Jersey who knew Nicholas and Elizabeth, and not a single trace of them had been found. No sightings or reports of them, or evidence of any activity from their bank accounts. The Newell brothers had both returned to the UK by this time, but were to return to Jersey on numerous occasions from here to assist in the investigation, and to be interviewed by police, who were by now considering their parents' disappearance to be a suspected murder. The first actual evidence of any foul play having occurred in the case came to light on the 3rd of November when Detective Inspector Nimmo decided to once more examine the missing couple's home. When police had first visited the house the day after the couple had been reported missing, as it had appeared neat and tidy with no apparent signs of a struggle or any obvious forensic evidence that suggested foul play being visible, then a full forensic check had not been carried out. Detective Inspector Nimmo had been poring over the statements taken when he recalled Maureen Ellum's observations about the fresh bed linen and the missing rug, and decided himself to go and have another look around, this time looking a bit closer. 
By the living room fireplace, he discovered a poker stained with what he was sure was spots of blood, and also blood staining that was on the frame of the main bedroom door. It made him now request a full forensic examination of Nine Kloster Atlantic to be carried out, and on the 9th of November, forensic scientist Dr David Northcott led a team to do this, including an examination of all surfaces in each room. This examination revealed signs in the living room and the bedroom that someone had attempted a clean-up operation there, using cleaning agent to wipe down the walls and furniture. Bloodstains that were invisible to the naked eye were also found in both rooms, leading to Dr Northcott's opinion that the staining resulted from some sort of violent incident or attack that had took place in both locations, causing blood to spray over the two rooms. By far the largest visible concentration of this were 30 microscopic separate blood spots on the wall above the fireplace and around the living room hearth. There's a photo if you check the show's Instagram page, there's a picture of the recorded spots that forensic experts found here so you can see the spray pattern or you can imagine it. Another spot, the carpet, underlay and floorboards at the entrance to the master bedroom the exact spot where Maureen had noticed that the carpet had been lifted and nailed back down was also found to be heavily bloodstained when it was removed. However, the blood found here was diluted, indicating that someone had attempted to clean it all up. The concentration of blood found around the fireplace also suggested that the missing rug had been disposed of because it was too heavily bloodstained to clean. Such a clean-up operation throughout the property would also go to explaining why the central heating had been left on full there. Was it to help the property dry out? There now seemed to be little doubt that Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell had met a violent end in their own home and their bodies removed and disposed of elsewhere. And then an intriguing piece of information reached the ears of detectives. On the day that the Newells had last been seen, that afternoon, Norman's Hardware Store in St. Helius sold a customer an interesting assortment of items. These included a pack of heavy-duty rubble sacks, two trenching spades, an agricultural bladed pick tool known as a mattock, two torches and batteries, a coil of rope, two small craft knives, a quantity of upholstery cleaner, and two tarpaulins, blue and red in colour. Coming to £103.42, the bill had been paid for in cash by a tall, rugged, blonde-haired man with a Germanic accent. A man who physically fitted the description of Roderick Newell. The brothers had also admitted during their initial interview with police that on the Saturday afternoon they'd hired a red Renault traffic van to enable Mark to move some furniture, a bed and mattress, from his previous residence to his house on the island. Roderick claimed that he'd forgotten his driving licence, which is a necessary item to produce whilst hiring a van, so Nicholas Newell had agreed to use his, and accompanied his son to the hire company, Forest Van Hire in St Helier, to collect it. Now police managed to trace this van and brought it in for closer examination, and under the microscope, minute blood spots that matched those taken from the bungalow were found on the floor of the cargo area of the van. With these discoveries in mind, police now interviewed the Newell brothers once again, where they were questioned for several hours about the account they'd given concerning their movements over the entire time they were on the island the weekend that their parents had disappeared. 
and once more, like their initial interview, both Roderick and Mark were calm and collected, with both adamant that they had nothing to do whatsoever with the now-suspected murder of their parents. Roderick denied outright being the blonde-haired man who had bought what suspiciously looked like a body disposal kit from the St. Helier hardware shop on the 10th of October, telling police they must have been mistaken and it was somebody else, whilst also denying that the van had been hired with the express intention of using it for disposal of their parents' bodies, not for moving furniture. The interviews took police no further in their investigation though, and once again the Newell brothers were allowed to leave the island and return to their respective careers. Police were by this time sure that what they were dealing with in the Newell's disappearance was a case of parricide, but the evidence that they had was thin at best. Although they had strong indicators that murder had taken place in the bungalow, the blood spots found in the house and the evidence of clean-up operation, the disappearance into almost thin air of a middle-aged couple, and the suspected purchasing of a body disposal kit by a man they were convinced was Roderick Newell, without any bodies or witnesses, detectives and lawyers representing the Jersey force knew that this circumstantial evidence alone would be nowhere near enough for any realistic prospect of a conviction. More evidence would be needed, and although D.I. Nimmo and his team resolved themselves to carry on and not give up with the investigation, unless one or both of the bodies of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell were found in a shallow grave, or were washed up because there was the very real possibility that they'd been dumped at sea, it was difficult to see where this extra crucial evidence could come from. Then on the 8th of March 1988, more evidence came to light. A police dog handler, Phil Kirkham, working with two German shepherds on opened land near the Newell's previous home, the Crow's Nest, which is about five miles away from the bungalow they disappeared from, discovered the ashes from a long burnt-out fire. Scattered around the area where the fire had been were an assortment of items, including the remnants of a pick-like tool of some kind, some spectacle lenses, a charred clay pipe, and the remains of a lady's handbag, which were identified as items belonging to the missing Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell. The handbag was found to contain a bottle of Givenchy perfume and a brand of cosmetics that Elizabeth Newell was known to use, and any coincidence was ruled out when another item, a distinctive fountain pen, was also found inside. The pen had been given to Elizabeth at Christmas 1986 as a present from a family friend. A fresh wave of optimism now swept through Jersey police following this discovery. The case had flagged to that point, but the items that were found triggered an intensive hunt concentrated around the site of the fire at Grave Delec. If the Newell's personal effects had been disposed of here, then had the evidence of clean-up items, the rug and the blood-stained cloths, also been disposed of here, and were the bodies buried somewhere nearby? That's sound enough logic, isn't it? Huge searches of this area of the island, Grave Delec, were carried out by police and volunteers to try to locate anything that may resemble a hidden grave, and ground-penetrating radar was used, as well as aerial photographs of the island being taken and studied, but to no avail. Also, to the dismay of police, although the items discovered at the fire were identified as belonging to Nicholas and Elizabeth, they yielded no new forensic evidence for police to use. 
the existing evidence was still deemed nowhere strong enough to bring any charges or gain a realistic prospect of conviction, and these items didn't advance this prospect at all. But it wasn't for lack of police attempting to find new evidence. Aside from this, an expert in laser fingerprinting was brought in to examine the suspected scene of the crime, and the entire lounge, ceiling and wallpaper from the Newell front room was even removed and taken back to London for further testing, although no new evidence was discovered following this. The case once again became inactive, a status it was to remain at for a number of years. By the time 1989 came around, Roderick Newell had resigned his commission in the British Army the previous year and had followed his plan to become an adventurer sailing alone around the world using his father's yacht, the Chanson de Lec. He sailed firstly from Jersey to Spain and then on to Morocco, then out of the Mediterranean and down to the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, where he headed to New Zealand for several months. From New Zealand, he then travelled towards South America and on to the Falkland Islands, where he was also to stay for a number of months. I spent many months in the Falkland Islands myself many years ago when I was in the forces. What a desolate place. It's good if you don't like trees, let's just say that. By now, Roderick still looked the part, still tanned and blonde and he was well built still, but gone was the clipped military haircut, the officer posture and the Sandhurst instilled characteristics. Think more a bit Patrick Swayze in Point Break by now without the shit Keanu Reeves saying, People have died, Bodie, and you've got to go down. By all accounts, Roderick was still using top-quality skunk whenever he could get it also, and was putting it about in every port that he sailed into, with the looks and the accents still making him a massive hit with the ladies. Mark Newell, meanwhile, had moved up yet again in his financing career. He was now based in Paris, living in a luxury flat near the Arc de Triomphe, he was chauffeur-driven everywhere, had a home gym, personal tailor, a Harrods account, and all this was topped off with a six-figure salary. He, like Roderick, had kept a wide berth of Jersey following the winding down of the investigation into his parents' suspected murder, but in early January 1991, he returned there for a hearing at the Royal Court of Jersey in St. Helier. The reason for the hearing? It was so bailiff Sir Peter Krill could declare his parents officially dead and he could then petition to wind up their estate. Mark told a packed court the story that he and Roderick had told police more than three years previously and added solemnly, I believe they are dead primarily for three reasons. I have not seen or heard from them for more than three years. I have seen no evidence that they have used any of their financial assets in those three years and also, largely because of information given to me by the police who have indicated that they are investigating murder. The 30-minute hearing resulted in Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell being declared officially and legally dead, and Mark immediately set in motion claims for he and Roderick to receive equal shares of the Newell's estate, which in the result of both Nicholas and Elizabeth dying was to be shared equally between the two sons. The exact amount this would be could not be determined, but it was estimated that both Newell's sons would be better off to around the £800,000 mark each. Roderick could not attend this hearing himself because by January 1991 
his travels had taken him to Brazil. Mooring up at the dock of Boleros del Sol Yacht Club at Porto Alegre, he met a stunning Brazilian teacher named, unfortunately, depends how you say it, Helena Pedo Pedo, and was instantly smitten. I mean, seeing her to him was like seeing the moon landing for the first time, or the first time, personally, I ever heard definitely maybe. Roderick had soon charmed his way into Helma's bed, and they became a couple. He told her about his younger brother, and went on to explain to her that his parents were both dead, but not how they died. But telling Helma this must have flicked a switch in Roderick. It was perhaps the enormity of the situation that began to wear him down, the years that he'd spent alone at sea giving him ample time to dwell on stuff, with guilt eating away at his conscience. As he spent more and more time with her, it built up more and more inside him, until one evening, when the couple were at her flat, he asked her to hand him a paperback copy of the book Magister Ludi, or The Glass Bead Game as it's known in translation, by German author Hermann Hess, where he read aloud to her the following extract from it. Oh, he thought in grief and horror, now I am guilty of his death and only now, when there was no longer need to save his pride or offer resistance, he felt, in shock and sorrow, how dear this man had already become to him. Quite profound, eh? Absolute load of bollocks, I thought myself. Roderick then held Helena tightly and told her, I am a murderer, I am a murderer, I am a murderer, I killed my own parents. Although Helmer was shocked by the tale he then told her, she was either love-blind or afraid for her life now, for she said nothing. She didn't breathe a word of what he told her to a soul for more than a year, although arguably the fact that her boyfriend was a self-confessed double killer was the death knell for their relationship, something she just can't quite move past, can you? Only a couple of months later, their relationship had ended. By that time, his parents' estate was now settled also and he'd received control of his share of the inheritance. So with cash now on the hip, Roderick Newell decided to use a sizable amount of the fortune he'd received to achieve his dream of spending life out on the ocean by getting himself into the yacht chartering business. To this extent, by late June 1992 he'd organised the purchase of a 66-foot sailing vessel named the Austral Soma for the sum of £150,000. But in order to register the vessel with insurers Lloyds, who'd long been the Newell family insurers, and to collect several other important documents collating to the sale, Roderick had a journey back to London, and whilst there he went to see his mother's sister, his aunt Nan Clark. Now Mrs. Clark had long been filled with unease and suspicion that she just couldn't shake that it was her own nephews who'd been responsible for the disappearance of Nicholas and Elizabeth. Now, after seeing Roderick for the first time in years, the conversation understandably turned to the subject of his parents. When she asked him outright what exactly had happened that night, here Roderick looked shaken and suddenly said to her, even if you knew exactly what had happened, you still wouldn't understand. I don't understand it myself. Despite her efforts, he wouldn't expand on this any further, but he did tell his aunt just before he left that he was also shortly planning to head up to Scotland to visit his grandmother and his uncle Stephen and his wife Gay. 
As soon as he'd left, Nan Clark immediately contacted the now Detective Inspector Adamson in Jersey to tell him of the strange encounter that she'd just had with her nephew. Learning of Roderick Newell's strange behaviour and how Nan Clark thought that he'd been on the verge of making a full confession to her, D.I. Adamson believed that the meeting with his father's twin could be the turning point in the long cold investigation, which was music to his ears as he'd almost given up any hope of ever resolving the case. Stephen Newell was contacted ahead of Roderick's visit and when told of Mrs Clark's belief, agreed under police supervision to wear a concealed transmitter so detectives would be able to listen in and record the conversation when he and his nephew met. A meeting was duly arranged between Roderick and his uncle at Perthshire's Dunkeld House Hotel for the 14th of July 1992, where Stephen and his family were staying at the time celebrating his wife's birthday. In an adjoining room to their meeting, the conversation would be monitored by a 14-strong squad of detectives from Jersey who'd gotten there earlier at breakneck speed to bug the room and to set up surveillance. The meeting duly went ahead, and for several hours the conversation rambled on mainly about Roderick's boat and his voyages. It was like a young Uncle Albert. Second only Phil's reference of the episodes, actually, that. Then on to his plans to become a charter skipper. Then after about four hours in, investigators heard what they were waiting for, because it was then that Roderick Newell looked his father's twin brother, his uncle Stephen, right in the eye, and tearfully confessed to him the murders of his mother and father. He spoke quite freely as though it was a relief of their bodies being wrapped in tarpaulins and digging graves in the early hours of the morning for them, admitting freely as well that it was he who was solely responsible for the murders, but hinting at the involvement of another person in the aftermath. Stephen, showing remarkable self-restraint, urged Roderick to now confess and tell police where the bodies were buried, but he did not agree or refute to do this, instead saying that he needed to seek legal advice before doing anything. Yet even after this confession, Newell wasn't arrested. The Attorney General of Jersey had refused to grant Jersey Police an immediate arrest warrant for Newell, because there were concerns that if the arrest was made and the taped evidence was then deemed not good enough following its transcription and analysis, Newell may be released and go beyond the grasp of police and escape justice for good, especially if he buggered off on a yacht again into non-extradition waters. To this extent, the Attorney General wanted to hear the evidence first hand. But Newell was then to go missing. Being tailed by Jersey police, he may have begun to suspect that he was being lured into a trap by the time he left the hotel at 7pm that evening, following his meeting with his uncle. As officers attempted to keep the gold Golf GTI that Newell had borrowed to use for his trip under surveillance as he sped south from Scotland, Newell managed to give them the slip near Warrington by employing anti-surveillance tactics that he had learned during his time spent serving in Northern Ireland with the Royal Green Jackets. Two days after this, Jersey police had their arrest warrant, but they now had no idea where Roderick Newell was, because by the time the tapes of him confessing to murder had been played to the Attorney General of Jersey, Philip Bailhash, and the arrest warrant subsequently issued by him, Newell and the Astral Soma had already set sail out onto the ocean. 
There was no means to track him down and no means to arrest him. He could be off absolutely anywhere. But police were determined to find Newell by whatever means possible and they now turned their attentions to Mark Newell. D.I. Adamson's team knew that Roderick and Mark were in regular contact and by that time, as we've said, Mark was now based in Paris. Surveillance was placed upon him there and two weeks after Roderick had managed to leave the UK, on the 29th of July, Mark arrived in London and booked into Blake's Hotel in South Kensington, where he was monitored by officers from Scotland Yard, who Jersey police had liaised with. They believed Mark had come to the UK from France to collect the registration documents for his brother's boat and deliver them to him, a belief that was cemented when they discovered that Mark had subsequently booked flights from London to Paris, then on to Madrid, and then to Morocco. Acting on a hunch, liaison with the Gibraltar police had resulted in two drug squad officers heading across to Tangier, then surveilling and confirming that the Austral Soma was currently moored there with a crew of two, crewman Steve Beldham and skipper Roderick Newell. Mark was clearly on his way there to give Roderick the vital documents, and detectives calculated that once Roderick Newell had collected these, he would then sail back out of the Mediterranean and head down towards South America. But if he did, they had a big surprise planned for him. The big surprise, Operation Snowball, was to be unprecedented in the history of the Royal Navy. On Tuesday the 4th of August, as Roderick sailed for the Straits of Gibraltar, he had no possible idea of the intricate trap that had been set for him a trap with rules that had been clearly set out by legal and diplomatic experts at the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office. The progress of the Austral Soma was at first strictly only to be monitored and only intercepted if she was flagless or flying the red ensign and sailing in international waters. This monitoring was carried out by an RAF Nimrod anti-submarine aircraft who vectored HMS Ranger, a fast patrol vessel, and Royal Navy frigate HMS Argonaut towards the yacht. On board the Ranger was Jersey CID Detective Sergeant Charlie McDowell, accompanied by a team of armed officers from the Gibraltar Police and in possession of the warrant for Roderick Newell's arrest. After a Lynx helicopter had identified the Austral Soma 150 miles southwest of Gibraltar, at 5am on the 5th of August, Sergeant McDowell and the armed unit transferred across to the Argonaut, which then caught up with the Austral Soma from the position it had remained five miles behind. A VHF message was then relayed to the Austral Soma, instructing her to head to the warship for a routine documentation check, which Newell complied with no fuss whatsoever. Placing his passport and documentation into a shoulder bag, he lowered the tender from his yacht and rowed a short distance out to it to the jumping ladder, port side aft. He was greeted at the Argonaut by a Royal Naval officer who helped him aboard and told him cheerfully, Have we got a surprise for you, old boy? That surprise was six armed officers pointing automatic weapons at his head and Detective Sergeant Charlie McDowell, who then stepped forward and identified himself produced the arrest warrant in his hand and arrested Roderick Newell on suspicion of the murders of his parents, Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell, in October 1987. 
I bet he'd rather have had a new bike as a surprise, wouldn't he? Newell was speechless at this and was taken below deck to the brig where he was manacled to a grill and guarded at rifle point whilst the Argonauts steamed back towards Gibraltar. A small party, including a senior crime officer, was put aboard the Austral Soma to bring it back to Gibraltar, escorted by HMS Ranger. Over the next few months, there were several scares for Gibraltar police along the way with such a high-profile prisoner in their custody. An air exclusion zone was placed around Gibraltar's medieval Moorish Castle prison, where Newell was incarcerated while awaiting extradition to Jersey, which was necessary after intercepted telephone calls indicated he was negotiating a carefully orchestrated escape plot with criminals to have him sprung from custody. In one call, a woman's voice was heard to tell him, The best shots on the rock have been hired to help you, whilst in another, a man's voice told him, We've got one shot at this only. There are people working for you here and in London and Jersey. Security was also stepped up after an electronic bug was found in an office suite being used by the prosecution and Detective Inspector Adamson's hotel room was broken into and ransacked whilst he was over discussing the extradition with authorities. A former MI6 agent was also spotted on the island every time Newell was due to be transferred to court and had to be warned off by police. Obviously not much of a former agent, was he really? Now the identity and sources of any of these have never ever been satisfactorily explained in the case. So where he arranged all this from, did he arrange it? Your guess is as good as mine. Newell also attempted suicide on several occasions whilst he was incarcerated here. He took a near-fatal overdose of sleeping pills that he'd managed to hoard and secrete in his cell, and following this, he almost bled to death after slashing his wrists and his groin with a concealed razor blade. Following these two attempts, a search of his cell found further razor blades concealed in the spine of a book on his shelf, and a potentially lethal cocktail of drugs was found in an orange that had been delivered to his cell. By this time, Newell was completely demoralised and broken. A strong indication of how things were likely to go came when the former Royal Green Jackets officer, the adventurer who'd sailed single-handedly around the world, sent a copy of Michael Andhate's book, The English Patient, to Gibraltar QC Desmond de Silva, lead counsel who was running the case on behalf of the Crown. A note affixed to the book instructed De Silva to study page 5, which he did, but at first could see nothing of significance. There was nothing underlined in it or no notes written in the margin. Then under closer inspection, he noticed a series of pinpricks on the page, each one underneath a certain letter in a particular word. When read in sequence from the top to the bottom, they spelled out the message, I will plead guilty. Yet the process to get Roderick Newell extradited back to Jersey took about 15 months in total, with his defence counsel, funded by his brother Mark, creating delays by arguing that the manner of his arrest had been illegal. During one hearing, Mr Felix Pizzarello, the Gibraltar stipendary magistrate, ruled that the tape-recorded confession obtained during the meeting with Stephen Newell in Scotland was inadmissible as evidence because it had been sneakily obtained. He demanded corroborative evidence of any confession be produced before he would allow the case to go forward. 
and Jersey detectives were now bricking it once again, distraught and frustrated that the suspect it had taken them so long to bring to court now may have the case against him dismissed and walk free. But then they had a stroke of luck. Whilst examining Roderick's filofax, they'd found an address in Brazil for his former lover, Helena Pedo. Officers travelled to South America to see and speak to her, and it was then that Helena told them the remarkable story that Roderick had confessed his parents' murder to her more than a year before. She eventually agreed to fly to the UK to make a statement to Jersey police to this effect, doing so at the beginning of December 1992, and her signed account that revealed the devastating confession he'd made to her was made and was able to go before the court in Gibraltar as evidence. Roderick finally left Gibraltar for the Channel Islands on the 6th of November 1993, where as soon as he landed and stepped off the plane, he was met by other Jersey police officers and was arrested on suspicion of the murders of Elizabeth and Nicholas Newell in October 1987. It was Roderick Newell himself who had told authorities eventually that he wished to go back to Jersey to face justice and told detectives that once he was there, he would lead them to where the bodies of his mother and father were buried. Also charged with double murder was Mark Newell. Oh yes, Mark had not been forgotten about at all. He'd been arrested at his penthouse flat in Paris way back on the 16th of March 1993 and a search of his home had managed to produce the receipt for the final meal that he and Roderick had had with their parents on the night they'd last been seen. After the necessary arrangements were made in Paris, Mark was flown to Jersey on the 29th of April and remanded in custody into the island's Lamoy prison to await trial. Unlike Roderick, he hadn't fought extradition in the slightest. When Roderick was met off the plane, as agreed he immediately took officers to the area of Grave de Lec on the island, where he outlined an area behind the former Newell family home, the Crow's Nest, as being the area where he'd buried his parents' bodies. The topography of the land had changed in the six years since the murder and burial, with the once green meadows and scrubland that was there now largely cleared and replaced with a catchment area and a pumping station, and it had already been unsuccessfully looked over with ground-penetrating radar, but it was somewhere here that he indicated that his parents' remains lay. As a six-acre area was sealed off here, Roderick was then taken back to 1st St. Helier Police Headquarters to be formally charged with double murder in compliance with Jersey law, before being remanded to the island's Lamoy prison and a reunion with his brother. Four days later, two days after he'd entered a provisional plea of guilty to the murders of his parents in court at St. Helier, Roderick Newell led detectives to the spot where they were buried. In a field beside a wood at Grave de Lec, he eventually pointed to a grassy dip where the search party began to dig. To the astonishment of detectives, Newell himself even got into the pit and began clawing at the earth with his bare hands. Eventually, just three feet down, the corpses of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell, still wrapped in separate plastic and tarpaulins, and dressed how they'd been for that fatal final meal, and lying top to toe, were found where they'd lain for more than six years. So tightly bound and wrapped were they, that despite being in the ground for such a long period of time, the remains were remarkably preserved. 
in near perfect condition enough for them to be even visibly identified as the missing couple. One report claims that the Rolex watch on Nicholas Newell's wrist was even still ticking. Roderick Newell crumpled to his knees and wept as the remains of his parents were carefully removed from the spot where he'd buried them then was led away to jail to await his trial. Post-mortem examination of the bodies revealed cause of death to be severe lacerations to the head, underlying which were multiple fractures of the skull. Nicholas had been struck twice from the front, and then a further six times to the back of the head, whereas Elizabeth had received seven blows, any of which could have been fatal. The brothers' trial was heard at the Royal Court of Jersey in St. Helier on the 8th of August 1994 before bailiff Sir Peter Krill, where each brother was to plead guilty. Roderick to the double murder of his parents, but Mark to the lesser charges of assisting in the disposal of his parents' bodies and concealment of the crimes. Mark Newell had confessed only two days before to police that he had helped his brother dispose of his parents' bodies but insisted that he had not been party to the actual murder. He said that he'd returned to the house to find his parents dead in the living room and bedroom, and Roderick holding his father's shotgun threatening to shoot himself. He'd only agreed to help dispose of the bodies and clean up the scene, because he believed that if he had not, Roderick would have taken his own life. In February 1994, therefore, police decided to drop the murder charge against Mark Newell, and proceed only with charges of helping to dispose of the bodies and destroy other evidence. Here, Roderick Newell, ever much the impassive officer type in the dock, told the court that he could remember little about the murders except arguing with his father, his father pushing him over, and him subsequently hitting his father with a rice flail. But his story was attacked by the prosecutor, Jersey Attorney General Mr Michael Burt, who told the court that the murder had been fabricated and crafted with meticulous care. It was a view that was shared by presiding Sir Peter Krill, who said, Crimes of matricide or patricide have always attracted particular horror. This court shares that view. And the court was to hear a full account of the events that had occurred on the night of the murders in Roderick's confessional statement, which was read out to the packed courtroom. It read in part, I admit that I killed my parents at nine Clos d'Atlantique. My recollection is not completely clear after so much time. The circumstances were that after Mark had left, my parents and I were alone in the house and we continued talking and drinking in the sitting room of their home. A heated argument developed in which many old wounds were reopened and it came to a head with my father and I standing face to face and I told him what I thought about him, saying things that I'd never said before. He pushed me and I fell, hitting my head on the dining room table. I found myself next to a box of possessions which I'd sorted out and removed from the attic early that day. On top of this box was a pair of rice flails, which I grabbed and used to club my father. I remember him falling. Next moment I found myself sitting on the floor of the hall, I got up, went back into the sitting room, and I saw my father's body. I couldn't find a pulse. In a complete panic, I checked the kitchen and bedroom, where I found my mother's body. This triggered my memory of attacking her, and I then realised I had killed both my parents. 
Sometime later, I contacted Mark, told him what had happened and said that the only thing to do was to kill myself. He persuaded me not to do that and said he would meet me at the house. When Mark arrived, I think I was in the sitting room holding a shotgun. Mark eventually calmed me down and talked me out of taking my life. We then took the bodies into the van and buried them. We returned to the house, possibly via La Falaise, and tried to remove all traces of what had happened. My feelings of guilt and remorse built up ever since that night. I found it increasingly hard to live a lie. I've still not understood how I was capable of committing such horrific crimes. I think it was probably caused by bitter childhood memories awakened by the argument. I'm relieved that this is all out in the open. I'm appalled by what I did to my parents. And I'm very sorry that Mark is suffering and his only involvement was after the killing to help and protect me. The court then heard Mark's confession, which he'd given only two days before the trial began. On Saturday evening, my brother and our parents drank a great deal of alcohol. They drank champagne before dinner and several bottles of wine with the meal. On returning to our parents' house, they started on the whiskey and began to argue, not violently, about my brother's career and other matters. It was an argument I'd heard before. I was sober and I was not interested in it, so I went home. Some hours later, in the early hours of the morning, I was contacted by Roderick. He was crying and incoherent and stated how he'd killed mother and father in a drunken row and he was going to kill himself. He kept saying he was sorry. I went straight to my parents' house and found mum and dad both dead with severe head injuries. My brother had blood on him and was crying in a distressed state holding father's shotgun. I told my brother the best thing to do was to call the police. He said that he was going to shoot himself he felt that the police would not understand the circumstances. I argued for some time, and eventually I agreed to help conceal the crime. It was then, and is now, my belief that if I had not done this, he would have killed himself. I found in the boiler room, garage and garden shed, tarpaulins, tools and other equipment to clean the house and dispose of the bodies. I helped him to bury the bodies at Grave de Lec and dispose of the evidence. There were several pairs of rice flails on the floor. Roderick gathered them up and I did not see them again. He said he'd cut them up and disposed of them. I lied to my family, friends and police to give my brother an alibi and cover up the crime. I am very sorry I did not call the police that morning. I know I made the wrong decision, but at the time I could not accept the consequences that I feared of taking matters into my own hands and contacting the police. I will always bitterly regret the pain, anguish and trouble caused ever since that night. But detectives didn't believe this was a spur-of-the-moment attack in the slightest. It was never established that it was Roderick who bought spades, an agricultural pick-like tool known as a mattock, tarpaulins and the other items indicative of equipment to hide bodies with earlier that Saturday. He was never to confess to this, but police considered it likely as no other such man was ever traced or identified and believed that it showed more that the killing was a planned murder carried out with military precision. I mean, was it to be believed that it was just mere coincidence that such items necessary for disposal were just found lying around the Newell home? And then there were other questions raised by both confessions also. What painful childhood memories were they on about? Why, if they both regretted the 
pain, anguish and trouble that they'd caused family, why had they immediately set about claiming their inheritance at the first available opportunity? On the 8th of August 1994, Roderick Newell was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murders of his parents, whereas Mark Newell received a lesser sentence of six years for the charges he was facing. Mark was to serve just 20 months imprisonment out of this sentence before being released from Layhill Prison in Gloucestershire in May 1996, reports claiming that the early parole date took into account the time he'd already spent in custody awaiting trial. Now there was uproar about this, not only because now Mark Newell was free to enjoy the estate that he'd inherited from his murdered parents, but it also seemed to be a bit of a slap in the face to police who'd worked so diligently on the difficult protracted inquiry, along with the sizeable costs it had taken to bring the brothers to justice. Now retired, former Detective Inspector Graham Nimmo, who was one of the first officers on the inquiry way back in 1987, was quoted as saying following news of Mark's release, That boy, along with his brother, cost this island and the authorities a tremendous amount of money. The investigation took longer than the time he has served. There were many, many arduous hours spent on it by myself and many others. It was largely down to him, all those lies that he told, lie after lie, that the investigation was dragged out like that. That's what annoys me. So imagine how much uproar was caused when it came to the brother's inheritance. Mark, being the financial wizard that he was, had reportedly invested a large part of the inheritance when it had been released in 1991 around several different countries, increasing it to as much as the estimated sum of £3 million, whilst making it almost impossible to track. He had no dire need in spending it, he was already on a six-figure salary and lived like a premiership footballer at the time, so it could be left to just grow in investments. Following his release, he now had clear access to all of these investments, as he'd not been charged with the murders, and Jersey had no statute then, as in England, which prevents a person benefiting from the proceeds of crime. A lawsuit was raised by relatives of Nicholas and Elizabeth to try to overturn the brothers' inheritance and had succeeded as far in stopping the Jersey funds whilst they were awaiting trial, but any further successes they had with overturning this is not recorded. Even if the lawsuit was successful, the court may not have been able to allocate them much more than the value of the Newell's bungalow on Jersey to them all thanks to Mark's financial wizardry and his shrewd and wise investments. Roderick, meanwhile, by all accounts, was a model prisoner who put himself to use and gain during his life sentence. There are several glowing testimonies that I found whilst I was researching the episodes about him, saying what a nice guy he was from prisoners who'd served with him, as double murderers go as nice guys, of course and all have a claim for his all-round sporting prowess, which was another pastime that he kept himself occupied with while serving his sentence. He was eventually moved to Ford Open Prison in Arundel in West Sussex, where using the name Rod Nelson, he was allowed day release and was able to work as an IT lecturer at nearby Chichester College. After serving just 13 years for double murder, he was released from sentence on life licence in May 2007, at age 42, to be greeted by his brother Mark. The brothers had remained close over the years, 
and Mark was now all set to help his brother rebuild his life. Undoubtedly, unlike the majority of those released on life license, I'd wager, helped out by the fortune from the Newell's estate that Mark had invested, and that had prospered more so over the years. Roderick was also reported to have told several people that he eventually wanted to come back to Jersey at some point also, calling it home. And what can stop him? Today, both are free and prosperous men, their debt to society decided as having been paid. Perhaps home is somewhere both have already visited. There were two reasons, according to detectives and family members who were spoken to after the brothers had been sentenced, why Roderick Newell slaughtered his parents. Primarily, it was believed to be out of greed, undoubtedly to get his hands on his share of a sizable inheritance. He loved money and he loved spending it, of that there was no question. His parents were wealthy and their combined estate was massive, and this would have been the means to funding him leaving the army and starting his desired life out on the ocean. But secondly, and some would say just as importantly, was to get even for a cold, loveless childhood that left both he and Mark despising their mother and father. This was no secret grudge either, or even arguably a one-sided one, as family and friends of the Newells were all to tell later of the severely strained lifelong relationships between the boys and their parents. Now I'm not saying they were the Wests, but nor were they the Waltons either. There was no close parent-child bond, and it was considered that this had developed over the years into a grudge that had festered until it came to a head in October 1987, with little remorse to be shown for two people the brothers hated and two people it was also almost considered hated him and his brother back. It's never going to end well, that is it. Maureen Ellum, the friend of Elizabeth's who delivered her a bouquet of flowers, not knowing that the couple had been murdered just hours before, and who was instrumental in reporting them missing, said later of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell, They treated their sons so coldly that if you treated dogs the same way, you'd be reported to the RSPCA. I don't think the boys ever had a kiss or a cuddle from their parents all of their lives. I doubt that they did either. There's no affection or interaction or time, even care for the boys really from their parents. No praise, but plenty of criticism. And that undoubtedly has to have an effect, doesn't it? Detective Inspector Graham Nimmo agreed, as he said when discussing the case following its conclusion, there is no doubt in my mind that they hated their parents. I can't put my finger on when they started hating them, but it was obvious to me from the beginning. I still have difficulty comprehending what they did and how they did it, but I believe it was something to do with the way they were brought up. They were two of the most arrogant and supercilious young men I've ever met. Now the Newell case was one that I marked out as a possible episode when I was first putting together the list of cases way back when I was just preparing for the first series of the show and it's remained on the fridge chalkboard which is a bit more of a figure of speech really. I mean I have got one but it's not massive. It doesn't contain hundreds of names or anything. Things do have their time on there of course but then they're committed to memory. It's a case that's been passed over by others which do tend to choose themselves but its turn has finally come here. It was a very complex tale to have researched and written up. Believe me, you wouldn't, the hours I've spent doing it. 
which is why I decided to break it down into a two-parter so it's a bit more manageable. I don't mind doing that at all, as I think it will have made for a better listen doing it like this. What do you think were the reasons behind Nicholas and Elizabeth being murdered that night then? The confessions are all the brothers have ever said concerning the crime, and whilst I do believe that their parents sounded pretty vile, self-centred people, and the boys did have a love-starved upbringing, is that enough of a reason for murder though? I mean, plenty of people get that, don't they? But they don't go all enter the dragon and smash in the folks' heads with a pair of nunchucks. Especially when their folks are worth so much more to them dead. I think if you have a happy family life, then no amount of money can overtake your parents' place. But if you don't have that, but you could have around a million quid if they weren't there, well... Was this then a pre-planned crime, and the hiring of a van and maybe buying all of the gear in the hardware store was evidence of this, so the brothers could be free of parents that they detested and become loaded from their inheritance as a result? Or was it just a result of too much alcohol mixing with a not uncommon furious row, and it was as Roderick described in his confession, a spur-of-the-moment crime where he just snapped after one row too many and lashed out? And what about the level of Mark's involvement? Do you think it was as described in his confession and he was just culpable in disposing unlawfully of his parents' bodies and cleaning up the scene to help and protect his brother? Or did the brothers always plan for things to go the way they did, should of course they ever risk capture? And the confession that was given led to reduced charges against Mark, which meant that he could still claim the inheritance when he was released. I mean... Who better to make sure that it flourished than the financial genius of the family? So was this a plan cooked up together after the act over several years? And the lack of emotion, the coldness of both brothers to barefaced lie like that over several years, was that ability nature or nurture? I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here as always. There are a few in-depth texts covering the Newell case available, all of which links to will be in the episode show notes this week, and all are incredibly detailed and painstakingly researched. I tried to go as in-depth as possible through the episodes as I could, but there are many aspects that I've only merely skimmed over, and any of the books is well worth a read for further information. They make for fascinating study. Also contained in the show notes are several articles about the case, and if you head over to the show's Instagram page, several images pertaining to this week's episodes. It's one that I've always found to be a remarkable case, and I hope that you guys also have found both episodes of this interesting and informative. As ever, I'd love hearing your thoughts and views on the case featured this week, which by now I hope you know where you can on the accompanying thread in the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media. You can even email me about it should you wish to. The links are always within the episode show notes and this week is no exception. This month's bonus Patreon episode will be released for supporters mid-next week. It is coming then and the regular show will return in two weeks' time on a new release date on a Saturday. I'm mixing it up a little bit for a while, plus I need to do some show housekeeping and admin, so I'm having a week off to catch up and prep. Coming shortly on the show as well, it may begin with the episode when I come back here, I'm not sure, we'll start this series' trilogy, and it's one of the most disturbing cases I've ever come across, so I'm just prepping you for that. 
Wrap up time as ever now, so I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you again very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me today, and goodbye for now.